Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we are exploring one of the key themes from our 2021 capital markets forecast, pivoting the business, who will be left standing. The theme focuses on the evolution and future outlook of industries in the wake of COVID-19. In this episode, we'll be discussing the pandemic's impacts on and what the future may look like for travel and tourism, which clearly has been from airlines to hotels and beyond, one of the areas of the global economy that was hit hardest, hit quickest, and is having the toughest time to recover. I'm so pleased though today to say that we have the perfect person to help us decipher what's going on in the travel and tourism space. And that person is Axel Heffer, the CEO of Trivago. Axel joined Trivago as a managing director in 2016 and was appointed to the CEO in 2019. He has a background in investment management, having also spent time as the managing director at the private equity division of J.P. Morgan Chase. And prior to that, he worked in McKenzie for almost a decade. Axel, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in, Axel. But before we do, remind us what Trivago is. So Trivago is um, is basically an accommodation meta search. So um, the the value that we provide is that when when you know where you want to go and when you want to go, you can use us to browse through all the different properties that that um, meet your criteria, and we show you um, where the what the different offers are that are offered by Expedia, by Booking, by the Property Direct, um, uh, and um, and that 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 allows you basically to very quickly navigate through through the available offers and then go to the booking site that gives you the best deal. Axel, I made some initial remarks around how the tourism and travel space has gotten pretty deeply affected. One might even use the word crush to explain or describe certain areas like airlines. So maybe we should start there, in fact, with airlines. How do you see the industry evolving going forward? Uh, we're probably, at least domestically here in the U.S., at levels that may be 25 to 30 percent of pre-COVID. And there's been a lot of focus on the safety of, of air travel. I know you're not a health expert, but you're obviously pretty uh, deeply uh, involved in the industry. What's your sense of the future of air travel around the world? Yeah, um, very good question. So so let's start with what we've seen so far. Um, what we've seen so far is that in summer, after the initial wave of lockdowns, um, that people wanted to travel, which is positive. So there is a, a basic need to get some rest, to relax and to travel, to get out of your, your core area. Um, and what we did see is that there was a significant shift in travel activity. So there was a significant shift to driving distance, so much closer, more um, uh, closer proximity. There was some shift to um, to apartments, so more control about um, over the property. And with the driving, we we thought that was particularly interesting um, because it's not only that you control the transportation, but you also control your return. Um, and that, in particular, in the autumn, has been more important as there have been quarantine requirements that have been imposed at short notice in certain countries. I mean, UK comes to mind, um, basically giving citizens 72 hours to return to the UK um, uh, without um, having to go to a quarantine. So now the question is, with that 
that that pattern in place, how could that change and how will it change going forward? Um, but we have also seen that there there was some return of air travel to closer distances. Um, so so um, intercontinental air travel was very very limited or hardly existing in the summer. And I think that if you if you use these three blocks, that's also how we are thinking about travel recovery on a very high level. First, close um, areas that you know well where you control transportation. The second one, areas that you do know well where you need to fly to, but still feels pretty safe, well known, and the uncertainty is limited. And least uh, and, and last um, will be intercontinental where the the understanding of the destination is uh, is least and where the uncertainty of what exactly you will experience in destination and how certain your return will be um, is is also least. Yeah, those categories are really important and very intuitive, actually. And it's interesting because you're in Europe with lots of different countries, obviously. But then at the same time, in the U.S., we have lots of different states and we're a pretty large landmass. And here, one of the phenomenon that's occurring is we're having states imposing quarantines on other states. And it's all being handled at the state level. Um, and so a lot of the distinctions that you're, and considerations that you're talking about, like be, knowing be, you can get back to where you came from, or perhaps not wanting to go too far where you're in a non-neighboring state and maybe fast to quarantine for two weeks if you come back. Uh, those are all really important considerations. Now, if we look at the main U.S. carriers, as an example, just focusing on United and American, United generates about 55% of its revenue from domestic activity. American generates 75% of its activity from domestic revenue. Um, would make it seem that perhaps American may be a bit quicker to recover applying a lot of the the logic that you just shared with us. Does that sound right to you? I mean, that that makes sense. I mean, we've seen it really in every single major market that domestic has gained very significant share. And for next year, I think it's highly likely that that will persist. Because what we've seen is that in, in most of the markets, the most popular domestic destinations were quite well booked. And so it's it's not unlikely that they were, for the for the summer vacations, there will be some pre-booking um, that it will be done at a point in time where the exact situation will not be known, which obviously gives a, is a clear preference to domestic destinations or very well-known international destinations, which for the um, U.S. would be uh, Mexico and Canada in particular. So one of the other distinctions that there's a lot of talk about, which I think makes a lot of sense to each of us, is that business versus leisure travel will have very different recovery patterns for the reason that as individuals, I think we are all very anxious to get back on an airplane and go someplace fun and resume our, our lives, right? What we work for, whereas businesses are going to be quite circumspect before they send their, send their employees on airplanes and maybe take risks that, that may be unnecessary, particularly in light of how businesses have pivoted towards the use of digital and Zoom and those types of practices. How do you think that the difference in recovery patterns on, on business versus travel activity will affect the industry. Yeah, I mean, the, the business travel is is a very, very interesting topic. Because like in every single crisis and every recession, there is the same discussion. It was 2001, it was in 2008. Okay, do we really need to travel that much? Can't we do more via phone conference, video conference, etc.? And in the end, after a couple of years, everybody was back to the, the old modus operandi. 
I do think this time it will be different. And of course, every time it's different, but this time I do believe that it will be truly different, but for a slightly different reason. And the key, the key reason why it will be different is that we have worked from home now for quite some time, or a lot of people have worked from home. And most companies that I'm talking to appreciate that it actually works. Yeah, so you can work in a very decentralized way. And, and pretty much all companies um, are discussing how to incorporate that into their core processes, how to be incorporate more remote work. And the thought that and the insight behind that, that, uh, that, that activity is that a good meeting doesn't have to be in person. And if you take that thought and that insight, that obviously means that there is a structural shift in how much you need to travel for business. And we've seen it already, but but for exactly this, this insight, I do believe that business travel will not return to the old levels. Um, in terms of exact recovery pattern, I mean, that's that's a bit more difficult to say. I don't think that's necessarily linear because you have sales-driven business travel that is likely to recover earlier and then you have got more relationship travel and business travel that that might might um, recover later um, intra-company related business travel might also recover later so the different segments might might have a slightly different pattern but our belief is that the the business travel volume overall um, will be lower after the experience that we've all um, been going through um, right now than it has been before so the potential market has shrunk what about more on the travel and the leisure side in terms of what you're seeing, as 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 we discussed earlier, one of the largest meta search engines out there, you guys have a very broad perspective on activity. And I'll give you an example. I was supposed to go to Greece. I planned this trip for over a year in June around my kid's schedule. And we, of course, we had to cancel it this past June. And I'm anxiously thinking through whether I should be replanning the trip for next June. Very hesitant to, to schedule anything because I feel um, that I don't know whether or not airlines are going to be safe then and whether or not um, the various things to see will be open. What's your advice to folks? What we've seen in summer in particular is um, is that there was a huge demand for relaxation, leisure or nature destinations. Yeah, So the coastal destinations and the, the classical uh, mountain destinations were uh, recovering very quickly. And uh, we've done an in-depth study for Germany, which was in Europe, the country that was perceived to be most stable or one of the most stable. And we've seen um, those destinations actually above 2019 levels. Yeah, so very, very solid and very quick recovery. Um, and we've seen similar trends to different degrees in other markets, also in the US, more mountains and more beaches. Um, in uh, what what has actually lacked a lot has uh, has been city trips in new york uh, new orleans uh, berlin london um venice so so more um event and 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 cultural um uh, driven driven trips have have lacked um very significantly um and then yeah in, international travel obviously has uh, has 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 performed very poorly overall as well the, the other dimension that we've seen is that the time to travel has come down a lot. So people book a lot more on short notice and, and also some very, very weird patterns where a significant part of the bookings is actually happening on the day of travel. So people are really planning for, okay, let's go for a weekend to the beach and booking on Friday when they know that nothing can happen between Friday and Sunday when they want to return. Axel, how much of that do you think is a function of the uncertainty around the safety of travel 
versus, hey, I'm thinking of going on this vacation, but I don't want to make these plans and then ultimately find that I can't go and lose my money. I think it's the latter. I mean, the the the, the key concern for the people that are willing to travel, I mean, they, they, there are two, two levels. One is, are you willing to travel overall or do you think it is too risky? And that that is basically segmenting the population into two camps. The camp that wants to travel is most concerned about um, whether there are any limitation or restrictions put in place and whether they can actually get the experience they are looking for. So if you book three weeks or four weeks in advance, will the restaurants actually be open where you are going? And will you be will you be allowed to return actually without going uh, for um, into a 14-day quarantine? So because that that has then a, a significantly greater cost to you and um, than than uh, than just not not going at all. And um, and that's where you have certainty. If you book on a very short notice, you know that these these kind of restrictions tend to have a certain uh, lead time, and so you know you know pretty much exactly what will happen uh, while you are traveling. What about the the idea though of losing your your money and the cancellations uh, policies? I mean, is that a, a factor, or have the providers of these services lighted up on the on the way that they handle this? Yeah, I mean, the, on on the cancellation topic, I mean, we've we've and and pretty much everybody has pushed free cancellation rates uh, very aggressively um, already during the lockdown for the summer. And tell us what that means, cancellation rates. So you can basically cancel for free. Um, okay. So it, it you do you don't have any 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 um yeah I mean there, there's no risk in, in in canceling so there's no financial risk um most of the airlines as far as I know have similar policies in place and that that's that's I would say is more a necessity in the current situation that you need to offer flexibility um and um and that those are those are obviously much more popular than pre the pandemic so I don't want to leave the the airline space completely before we focus more on hotels in a moment without asking or really spending a moment on the safety of airlines. You're not an expert in the health space, obviously. Have you flown? What was your experience? Actually, I, I, um, I've flown once um, since this has started. So not, not every week, but, uh, but just once overall. And, um, and I'm not an expert, I have to say. But when you talk to, to the, um, the airline executives, what they say is that the air is basically falling from the um, ceiling to the floor, relatively speaking, quickly. So the the risk of really contamination wearing mask is is very very low, which might or might not be true. I cannot judge on that, but but just listening to that, that is a very complex thought. I mean, if you are if you are trained to keep distance to everybody around you, then then that is is very difficult to 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 really um, fully digest and. That's why I mean I think it's it, it might be it might be more of a perception issue. So something has to happen. For example, everybody who's is boarding a plane needs to take a test to to make you really feel comfortable. I mean, when when I was flying, the the flight was empty. Yeah. So anyway, it was it was safe. Right. There, there was nobody on the plane other than me, so it was safer than than going by underground. But I think there there is something that. For the, for the segment of the market uh, or of the population that is more concerned about uh, the safety, health safety of, of traveling, you might need more visible and easier to understand uh, precautionary steps in addition to just the logical explanation that, that the plane actually might be safe. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's very unintuitive to think that you get put in this tin can and with lots of people and there's at least one person and it doesn't take much to spread those germs around the airplane, but we, we read the contrary. So... When you talk about other precautions, 
One of the new things that has popped up on our radar screen are these rapid tests. United Airlines is now offering that or requiring it, I should say. I believe on one route, maybe Dallas, London could be the route. And it would seem that that, even if these results aren't perfect, uh, the rapid test, it would seem pretty intuitive that if you get the cost low enough, that you would do that not just in airlines, but even for other things, going into um, Disney, uh, amusement parks, other kinds of things. What's your take on the potential ubiquity of that type of, of development and its importance or non-importance? I mean, to me, testing is the biggest upside. So uh, vaccines will be available. I mean, if you if you listen to all the experts in the first quarter, and then it will take some time to first first um, get access to the vaccines to medical staff and then to to the elderly. So the impact on the on the mass population is very likely to be limited for next year. Treatment will get better at the margin, but then testing is is actually something a bit of a wild card. So um, very very fast and quick and cheap, reliable test could actually allow us to to do certain things that are currently not possible. And um, and that's obviously also a big driver of traveling. Yeah? So so if you can do something, if you can go to the opera, if you can go to the Broadway, there are a lot more reasons to actually go to New York, for example, which um, which is then, then also changing the pattern that I was describing earlier, that city trips are significantly repressed. If there are more reasons to go to a city, that could help. But to predict the timing of of uh, of these tests and how how well they will work, how widely they will be avail- will be available, is difficult. But but I I do agree for the second half of next year, uh, our hope is also that um, that testing will contribute to some more sustainable recovery. I'm listening to you, Axel. I'm envisioning everyone lining up to get tested to get into the opera, and I can sort of I can I can get there, but I'm not sure I can envision everyone lining up to get tested to go to an Eagles game or a Giants game here in the U.S. <laughs> Let's talk more about the lodging space. We broke down the airlines with some level of detail and granularity. When you look at the lodging space in the U.S., it's clearly the worst performing sector, even worse than energy here in the U.S. And we look at, for example, the what we call the, the NAREIT Lodging and Resort Index listed in the U.S. was down over 60% in the first quarter. 36% in March alone, year to date, it's still down about 50%, has had a little bit of a bounce back. If you look at the overall hotel business, different kinds of chains, you've got the Hiltons, the Marriott's tend to be a bit more international, lots of more motel type of properties here in the US. How would you sort of segment the different trends that you're seeing across different kinds of, of properties and, and overall hotel businesses? Yeah. So I, I think the, 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 um, where I would start is where are the properties based? Yeah, so coming back to what I said earlier, if you are in more leisure nature destinations, so you've got a greater mix in the mountains at the, at the beach, um, that, that I would see as a positive. Whereas if I take the other extreme, if you are depending on intercontinental business travel, I know perhaps certain parts of Manhattan, then that is where demand is most likely to come back latest. Um, so, and, and you are also your existing demand might be lower. So, so the difference in, in occupancy rates, I would expect to be much, much greater than in a normal market. And the recovery slope will also be very different. The other dimension is what kind of property you're having. So 
if you're looking at mega hotels that are built for mass events, that is uh, more problematic than than looking at individual apartments um, that are rented out as full units. And if you if you then use those two dimensions uh, and and plot the the exposure of the different different groups, I think that gives you some idea um, how serious the situation and how bad the situation for them them will be in, in the months to come. Axel, before we leave lodging, we have to ask about the new upstart. Not so new, perhaps, perhaps not such an upstart, but Airbnb. How is that figuring in the ecosystem? Is it relatively advantaged or disadvantaged in the pandemic? That's actually an interesting question because they are indeed, there are two different groups. One is afraid of being close to other people. And the other group is afraid of getting um, getting contaminated through touching something. So if you are more in the latter, then you're more likely to stay in an hotel. If you're more afraid of being close to people, you're more likely to go for an apartment. Relatively speaking, the apartment uh, operators have done better so far in the pandemic. But then the overall market obviously has contracted a lot. Um, so uh, relative to, to hotel chains, the apartment operators like Verbo and Airbnb and also a Booking Holdings um, had an advantage so far. One of the things that I think is so interesting right now is that we've been through this sort of sine wave, if you will, of activity where we came down, we started really going back up over the summer, particularly because of that on the leisure side, that great desire to get out over the summer. But now it's starting to come back down again because you're seeing the the opposite the inverse correlation of the sine waves, if you will, in terms of the actual virus. Europe is ahead in this cycle. You've had significant lockdowns. What are you seeing in terms of the trends and the activity, whether it be actual travel or bookings for travel going forward? Are you seeing more of a drop-off and how big is the drop-off in Europe versus the U.S. or what's happening? It's a very good question. It's In Europe, you've got obviously different different rules by country and in some countries even by by federal state within the country but pretty much everywhere there is there is a lockdown and there are pretty much everywhere serious uh, travel restrictions so i know for example in germany you are not allowed to do a leisure trip yeah so you just can't you can't go to an hotel and uh, and stay overnight um so the the travel activity has um as intended by by the politicians have basically you know, come, come down to pretty much to a halt. Um, to be honest, it's not necessarily unexpected. I mean, it was clear if you look at at other other epidemics that it's very likely that there would be a second wave. And I think that's what everybody, in a way, needs to accept and and um, and and manage around that fact. Um, what is much more important, though, for the industry is that the summer is is uh, is relatively speaking safe and is is predictable both from a traveler perspective but also from from an industry perspective because that's where a lot more traveling is happening and that's where a, a significant part of the losses might be able to be uh, recovered so um i mean i i think the key thing is that that we actually control the the second wave in europe and it's not under control in in all the countries or perhaps not even in any and enter the summer or enter the spring in a, in a much more controlled manner um, to, to allow all of us to travel in, in spring, uh, early summer, um, and also for the industry to, to prepare for that. In terms of booking activity, as I said, there's, there's hardly anything. It, it's, it's, it's too early in the winter, if you want to say so. So uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's far away. 
Should I be taking advantage of the fact that cancellation rates uh, or fees have essentially gone away and, and be trying to book for the spring and the summer now, knowing that I could probably cancel and that there may be a big pent up wave? Those types of opportunities may book up quickly. And are there deals now that I should be looking to take advantage of? And also, how worried should I be that even if it's cancelable, if I pay for something now, maybe the vendor will be bankrupt and gone in six or nine or 12 months. How realistic is that a possibility? I mean, that's definitely a risk. And I mean, you've, you've it, it started already and it really depends. It, it's not only the hotel, it's, it's basically all the different players in the overall industry. It is almost impossible to make a profit right now. Um, obviously, some can, depending on, on which pocket they are serving, but you're in a significantly better position if you if you have sufficient liquidity. And uh, that's also um, allows you to potentially even benefit from the crisis. So that's a risk. Um, so, I mean, I can just talk about me. So, yes, I, I, I moved my summer vacation to next year. Um, Where are you going? Uh, Sri Lanka. Um, I don't know whether I will eventually go because I, I rescheduled. Sri Lanka. I have to be the optimist being in the travel industry. So um, thinking that, that things will get better sooner and, and will be more positive. Um, what you definitely can do right now, um, you can book fantastic hotels in the big metropolitan cities. So if you really want to get one of the, the, the most spectacular hotel experiences, I mean, you, I, I would search for where the demand is lowest. Uh, which is really the, the the top cities where where there is uh, very little intercontinental demand. So in Europe, a lot of people I know have actually gone to Venice um, because it's a lot less busy, given that there are hardly any intercontinental tourists. We all know about the, the cruise ships coming into Venice. So if you want to go to, what's the top hotel there called? It's the Daniele, I think, or, or something like that. You go to the Daniele or the Crillon in Paris for, for spring, book it now, right? And the same applies to the U.S. So what are the, the, the top intercontinental destinations where you tend to have a lot of Chinese, Japanese, European tourists? And that's where you probably can, can, can get the best deals right now. Whether you want to go there or not, that's obviously a personal decision. So one last question, which is a bit of a curveball. I'm one of those individuals that is very focused on my points. How many points am I accumulating? Even if I know that I'd probably be better off with a credit card, they just pay me 2% cash back all the time. Uh, I can't give up. I'm hooked into the whole point ecosystem. It's really fascinating because what, what, what airlines do actually is they have relationships with various hotel chains or credit card companies have relationships with the airlines and they actually get paid for the points, the point programs. And sometimes the point programs are, are worth more than the actual air travel to the company, to the airline itself. Um, so the whole point business is big business, really critical business. Do you think that that whole ecosystem has been disrupted in any you know, big way or is it going to continue on after the pandemic much as it has been? Or So from a, from a business perspective, I don't know the answer to your question, but I guess another question that is related is, how much do these point programs actually depend on business travelers? And what is the critical mass of business travel that you need to, to keep these ecosystems alive and profitable? I.e., if you have a structural drop in whatever 20, 30% of business volume in these programs, do they still work? And are they still as profitable as they have been before? I don't know what the answer is, but as I said earlier, I do think it is highly likely that there will be structurally less business travel. 
And it could or could not have an impact depending on you know what how, sure. how far they are in, in their economies of scale. From an individual perspective, I don't know. I guess there I'm too much the European. The airline programs are big in Europe, but the the um, the chain programs are not as big because there are more independent hotels and um, the the density of the very large chains, but in most countries is not that high. So the sacrifice that you have to go through just to get your points is much greater and there there are significantly better deals out there because there there are so many more other properties whereas i guess in in the us given the consolidation wave you can very easily choose from many different properties even within one existing point program i really found your first observations interesting that the business side of the industry whether it be airlines or even in certain cases hotels really could subsidize the point programs to some degree on the personal side. And without that coming back as quickly, you could see a real shift in the value of these point programs to the consumer. And maybe even existing points potentially could be uh, degraded in some way. We could go on and on and on. There's so much to talk about here. But um, unfortunately, we have to stop in the interest of time, Axel. But let me just take a moment to summarize what I think some of the key takeaways are from today's conversation. I think the first is that the likelihood that travel from a, an investing standpoint, a business standpoint, is going to resume to pre-COVID levels anytime soon over the six or even next 12 months is quite low. And that's because even with a resurgence in the travel on the personal side, the leisure side, um, business makes up um, roughly 30 to 40 percent of, of all travel bookings. And that's not coming back for quite a long time. Uh, due to concerns on the part of companies and due to the ability to get things done differently without having that in-person connectivity. So that's something to, to keep in mind um, as we invest. Secondly, that while there is clearly this fallout across the tourism industry, there are some areas that present, I think, bright spots and opportunity, and there's some developments that could really help things along. And so, for example, we should expect that quick testing to be more ubiquitous for a period of time uh, that will enable things like maybe even theme parks. Um, I could sort of certainly see need to have a, a quick test again to Disney. Um, that could help Disney push their capacity usage up for these parks, things like that, I think are real possibilities. And so again, as we look at a lot of these providers, those are distinctions that we're going to be making from an investing standpoint. And it's also something that people should take into account as they make their plans and arrangements um, and maybe provide more confidence for them on a personal level. And then lastly, I think it's so interesting to look at this dynamic that exists within the booking industry today where travel is so short term in and almost impulsive now in nature due to the need to know that it's going to be achievable and that you can actually make it back safely. But then at the same time, these cancellation rules and fees have become much more favorable so that if you're either willing to take a risk on a smaller uh, provider further out or if you're willing to only focus on the big the big chains that you know are going to be there, you can make plans now for longer out into next summer and you know you can cancel them. Um, you know you get your money back if you're careful around how you do it. Um, and you may be able to get some pretty good deals out there because probably we'll reach an inflection point where people are going to realize that it's going to be within their acceptable risk appetite to start to travel. They're going to know that they're going to want to travel when the weather gets better in the Northern Hemisphere. And you're going to start seeing 
uh, probably an asymptotic spike up um, in bookings. So again, Axel, I want to thank you so much um, for coming to us today all the way from Germany with your wonderful insights. Thanks for having me. And I want to remind our listeners how important it is to have their portfolio wealth plan stress test to see how they stack up, especially during the very uncertain times that we have today. Reach out to your advisor to learn more. We can look at your portfolio and evaluate what the worst case or downside is given a variety of different possible outcomes, even specific events that you may be concerned about occurring. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>